You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1903rd edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 3rd of November 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Val Fletcher and myself, Graham Parley. We should also like to mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. So we'll commence with the headlines. Everything for the goal. Slowly does it as span for third crossing is placed. Concerns over major A14 roadworks. Town traders see increase in shoplifting. Consultation on solar farm plan changes. A major milestone in the £126 million Lowestoft Third Crossing project has been passed, with the first giant span section gently put in position by Lake Lothing. The first part of the gull wing structure was lowered into place at the end of the town's commercial road on Saturday. The mammoth operation saw the 1,400-tonne structure wheeled into the correct position before it was jacked in and secured. The bridge section, called NAV 1, is 55 metres long and trundled at about one mile an hour to the two blocks it was to be fitted into, with the main operation taking about 40 minutes. About 120 people were involved in the move, which saw the track on the East Suffolk train line covered over with a temporary surface for the span to travel across as it inched its way to its final destination on dozens of wheels. NAV 1 is the first of eight sections of the Gull Wing Crossing, with the following parts due to be lifted in place by a giant specialised crane. Once completed next year, It will be the biggest bascule bridge of its kind in the world. As Nav 1 settled into its permanent home, there was an enormous sense of satisfaction by the two men spearheading the project. Neil Rogers, project manager at contractors Farrens and Simon Bretherton, project director for Suffolk County Council. Mr Rogers said, This is the biggest milestone in the project so far. It has been two years in the making. There is a lot of satisfaction to see it to be put in place. There have been significant challenges we faced together. There were no nerves, all the nervousness is in the preparation. Mr Bretherton said, it's great to see it happen. There has been a lot of hard work done to get to this point. The benefits it will bring will be improving the connectivity of North and South Lowestoft and helping to reduce congestion in the town. The bridge will link Waveney Drive to Denmark Way and Pito Way. The Navi 1 section arrived in Lowestoft in May by boat from Belgium and has been sitting by the side of the lake. The other sections will also, will also come from Belgium although around half of Farron's workforce on the project are from the Lowestoft area. 
Concerns over major A14 roadworks. Residents have raised the concerns over major roadworks on the A14 that could last more than 16 months. National Highways has revealed plans that would see a stretch of the A14's road surface replaced between Hawley and Tothill, near Stowmarket, which will start in February 2023 and finish by summer 2024. The government-owned company has launched four public information events for members of the public to learn more about the scheme and ask questions. However, some residents in Bury St Edmunds expressed concern over the planned works on Wednesday. A woman from Bury St Edmunds, who wished to remain anonymous, said, It always seems like they're just closing the roads and we don't really know why. There's a lot of talk of fixing things, but you never see the work actually happening. You're left wondering why on earth it is taking so long. The stretch of road on the A14 between Junction 47A and Junction 49 will be entirely relayed to provide a smoother and safer ride for those heading towards Ipswich. A contraflow system will be put in place to keep the road open during the reconstruction and will see road users share one carriageway at a reduced speed of 50 miles per hour. Whilst it has been set up, the road will be closed for two weeks between 10pm and 6am. National Highways said this will ensure the work is finished safely and quickly. However, one resident who wished to remain anonymous believes the company is covering its back by being vague. Summer 2024 is such an elastic term, he said. That could mean June, that could mean September. That's how they cover their backs when it is, takes longer than planned. At the end of the day, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. People will complain either way. The project is part of National Highway's long-term plan of investing £400 million per year to repair and replace roads across the country. Andy Jobling, National Highway's Programme Delivery Manager, said, Despite serving us well for decades, the surface of this stretch of road is coming towards the end of its life and needs upgrading. This scheme will make this stretch of the A14 safer and smoother, ensuring it's fit for the thousands of drivers that use it every day. Bury St Edmunds traders have seen a sharp increase in shoplifting, a business boss has warned. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of our Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, also said that restaurants and eateries are being targeted for their cooking oil. Mr Cordell believes that the cost of living crisis is a contributing factor for the increase. Different members have contacted me about some concerns they've had, he said. There have been some break-ins in the last week or so and they're incredibly rare. At the same time, there's counterfeit currency being tried and then there's this cooking oil phenomenon. The issue of criminality was rising, which may increase with the cost of living crisis. It's quite likely it could get worse, traditionally through recessions that tends to be the case. What our businesses can do is try to make their business as crime preventative as possible. Some of Mr Cordell's suggestions for businesses 
include staff engaging with customers and making eye contact so that criminals know they have been seen and, in the event of a crime, staff can provide a good description to police. Traders can also ensure CCTV is in working order and covering the whole shop or covering the most valuable items in the store, added Mr Cordell. We're so lucky that Berry is doing so well. Footfall is high, we've got more businesses coming here. There are lots of positives, but beating crime is something else for businesses to consider, and only our businesses can make the decision on what works for them. Consultation on Solar Farm Plan Changes A new consultation has been launched after revisions to a proposed solar farm in Bardwell were submitted to planners. Boom Powers wants to develop a solar farm on about 96 hectares of land on part of Euston Estate, located to the east of Fursfield, Bobeck and Bardwell. The farm says the farm could generate enough electricity to cover the annual needs of about 13,727 family homes across West Suffolk. The original plans were submitted to West Suffolk Council in March, prompting a flurry of public comments. Tracy Robinson of Heath Road, Sapperston, said, I feel it is important to support renewable clean energy where we can. Although I am aware of the mentality, not in my backyard, is always going to be abundant, once the work has been completed, I don't think people will really notice it. Mrs H. MacDonald of Quaker Lane, Bardwell, said, Schemes such as this have been shown to increase soil health, and as a retired farmer, I see that any gains in biodiversity as vital. But Edward Bartlett of Church Road, Bardwell, objected to the plans on the grounds of misuse of productive farmland, the scale and location and precedent. He said, The proposed development is on a landscape-wide scale, larger than the neighbouring villages of Bardwell, Barningham and Coney Western put together. Now, revised location and cabling route plans have been submitted to the planners. The consultation is running until November the 11th as a result of the proposed revisions. And we move on now to the general news. A high-tech farming robot has been busy weeding a parsnip field during an East Anglian technology trial. The Roboti is an autonomous tractor which navigates with a satellite-guided accuracy of within two centimetres, using attachments for farm operations such as seeding, weeding and spraying. The Danish-built robot is being trialled at Frederick Hyam, a Brandon-based fresh produce business with farms in Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, growing root vegetables including parsnips, potatoes and onions. Managing Director Jamie Lockhart said he wanted to explore mechanised weeding as a way to reduce herbicide use within a more preventative approach to weed control. We offered a 40 hectare hectare block as part of the trial, he said. The Roboti has drilled, planted the parsnips on this block and weeded them on several passes. 
Initially, it was about getting confidence in the accuracy and reliability of a fully autonomous system. In this regard, the machine hasn't put a foot wrong, and on several occasions we left the machine running all night whilst weeding, and the accuracy was perfect. Mr Lockhart, who is also the Norfolk County Chairman for the National Farmers Union, believes robots could work alongside manned machinery in the future. We don't see the robotic as a direct replacement for our manned equipment, he said. Our biggest asset remains our highly skilled team, who are essential to ensure consistent results with these high input crops. But we absolutely see opportunities for the robotic to work alongside these teams going forward. Tom Beach, a founder of UK machine distributor Autonomous Agri Solutions, said it plans to weed a greater area than it has seeded next year, meaning the robot will be weeding crops planted using conventional tractors. The volumes of data available in farming is enormous, he said. What I'm interested in, and what I'm looking for, is actionable data. What data will make a difference to a real decision we're making on farm? Autonomous AgriSolutions will be demonstrating the Roboti machine at the AgriTech Week REAP conference in Cambridgeshire on November the 8th, where Jamie Lockhart and Tom Beach will be discussing the technology. Seven new Suffolk pubs have been added to the campaign for real ale. Camera, prestigious guide of the best boozers in the country. The 50th edition of the Camera Good Beer Guide features 71 pubs and 38 breweries from Suffolk, which are located across the county. The guide lists the pubs that Camera considers to be the very best places to find a great pint in the UK. More than 4,500 pubs from across the country are included in the guide. The latest pub entries from Suffolk are the Rose and Crown in Bury St Edmunds, the Ship at Dunwich, the Spread Eagle in Ipswich, the Stanford Arms in Lowestoft, the Rumber Buck and the Brook in Washbrook, and the Racehorse in Westhall. Camera National Chairman Nick Antona said for nearly five decades the Good Beer Guide has been a comprehensive guide to the UK's breweries their ales and the best outlets to find them in across the country. The Good, Beer Gear, the Good Beer Guide has always had an important role in acting as a barometer of the beer and pub industry. We believe information gleaned from the guide is absolutely vital in the drive to save our pubs from closure and the campaign for policies that better support pubs, local breweries and their customers. Whilst we experienced a boom in the brewing industry over recent years, it's clear the effects of COVID-19 and subsequent cost of living and cost of goods crisis has been keenly felt. I'd encourage everyone to use this guide to seek out the very best examples of pub excellence and support these locals by visiting them. Anglin Water has issued a warning to customers in Norfolk and Suffolk to take care against bogus callers this winter. The water company said to be aware of distraction burglaries when a person tries to gain access to homes by pretending to be officials in the area.
It warns that often callers will pretend to be from the water board, but this organisation has not existed for decades. Reported cases of criminal activity goes up during the darker evenings, the firm said. It highlighted that people aged 65 or above are particularly at risk, saying that 50% of this age group are being targeted by criminals and scams, but only 5% are reported. Unfortunately, at this time of year, we hear of a lot more cases of our customers being targeted by fraudsters, said Bethany Kennedy from Anglian Water. All too often, bogus callers will claim to be from the water board, even though this organisation hasn't existed for over 40 years. To help keep customers safe, Anglian Water helped found Utilities Against Scams, an initiative which focuses on raising awareness around scams as a growing issue affecting many people. Miss Kennedy added, We want all of our customers to feel safe in their own home, which is why we're incredibly proud to be working in partnership with trusted organisations across our region to ensure our customers are supported. The work we've done with colleagues at Cade and Gas, alongside the commitment we continue to show to utilities against scams, are two great examples of how effective partnerships can benefit those most in need. Making sure our customers know we have services such as our password scheme, which can be used to add an extra layer of protection on their account, is essential. We want to ensure that our customers we may, who may benefit from a, some additional support are signed up to our priority services register. A town's outdoor Lido is set to turn off its boilers this weekend as swimmers prepare for the winter swimming season. Beckles Lido, after a record-breaking summer, which attracted more than 60,000 visitors, is turning its boilers off as the season changes. Sean Crowley, Beckles Lido's managing director, said, We weren't too sure what to expect post-Covid, but overall our numbers are very good and we are delighted by the support we have received. Our numbers are up 20% from last summer, which is amazing. Going into the winter is a new challenge. Mr Crowley has written a blog detailing the benefits of the winter swimming season and urges people not to be deterred by the colder water after the pool's heating is turned off at midday, Sunday, October the 30th. I am looking forward to getting back to cold water, but not as much as many of our swimmers are. We have our timetable out already with a booking system online, but people can just pay and or book at the gate too. I would encourage people to come forward and try something new. There are endless benefits, and above all, it is a really fun and social get-together. Just because you may book an hour slot doesn't mean you need to stay in for that length of time. And for those who hate the idea, you might be surprised. Water temperature in the first week of November should be between 21 and 23 degrees centigrade, about the same as Benidorm, and 17 to 19 degrees centigrade in week 2, the same as the Algarve before 15 degrees in week 3. 
On the back of a record-breaking summer, Mr Crowley says the pool is in a good position, but he is fearful how rising costs and energy prices may impact business after summer 2023. He said, we are well set for the winter and well set for the summer. The real challenges will become clear at the end of next summer. All we can do is hope that businesses like ours will get some help as soaring costs of chlorine, water and energy prices in general will make it tough. For now it is a matter of crossing one bridge at a time. It's a kind of use it or lose it situation, but we can't thank the community enough for the support in these tough times. Before I read my next article, um, I'm going to go back to the Anglia Water talking about the scams because I didn't read out the last paragraph, <clears throat> which says Anglian Water customers looking for more information can call its specialist priority services team on 0800 232 1951 or visit there. Now, my next article is coming about Christmas. <clears throat> it's that time of year again. Time for local pensioners aged 70 and over to book their seats for the annual Christmas lunch provided by Stetchworth-based businessman and benefactor Bill Gredley. The popular seasonal get-together is returning to New Market's Park Paddocks home of world-famous bloodstock auctioneers Tattersall's, and this year it will be even closer to Christmas on Tuesday, December the 20th and Wednesday, December the 21st. Over the two days, pensioners will have the chance to sit down to a delicious meal of roast turkey with all the trimmings and Christmas pudding, as well as having the chance to catch up with their friends and acquaintances they might not have had the opportunity to see much of over the past 12 months. A vegetarian lunch option is also available and applicants who have other special dietary requirements, such as gluten-free, should inform the lunch organisers by attaching details to the application coupon. And as well as the Christmas fair, there will be the usual musical entertainment. The lunch has always been very popular, and Margaret Butcher of the Gredley Charitable Trust, which organises the event, has advised those wishing to attend to get their applications returned as soon as possible with a deadline set for Thursday, December the 1st. Guests are reminded they need to make their own way to and from Tattersall's. Tables and seats cannot be reserved in advance, so groups of friends wishing to sit together should arrange to arrive at the venue at the same time. To be eligible to apply, pensioners must live within a five-mile radius of the clock tower, and each application form must be accompanied by £1 per head fee. Cheques should be made payable to the Gridley Charitable Trust, and sent to Unex House, that's U-N-E-X, Unex House, Church Lane, Stetchworth, and the postcode is CB89TN. Oh, you're making me feel hungry now, Val. 
<laughs> Long time to wait. Yeah, no, no, it's just the thought of it all. The mince pies, love them. Anyway, uh, community leaders and a Bollywood film director were among those who came together on Sunday to honour Dulip Singh. Dulip Singh was the last ruler of the Sikh Empire and was exiled to Britain in 1854 after being deposed by the British. He owned an estate in Elvedon and is buried in the cemetery of St Andrew at St Patrick's Church. Representatives from the local Sikh, Hindu and Muslim communities joined Thetford's mayor, Councillor Jane James, for a service remembering Singh. Among those in attendance were director Kajri Baba, who is currently working on a film about Singh's daughter, and Major Daljinder Singh Verdi from the Defence Sikh Network. The hot, dry summer and unusually warm October have affected this year's show of autumn colour and could be a sign of things to come, experts have said. Kevin Martin, head of tree collections at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, said the changing climate could mean a loss of the wow factor, traditionally seen as leaves on all trees change together in the season. This year's autumn has been a long, drawn-out process, with some trees losing their leaves as early as August in a false autumn, in response to the stress of the drought in the UK this summer and the very hot conditions. With different trees having different mechanisms to deal with heat and drought, Mr Martin said, This led to certain trees struggling to deal with the stress, and they've gone. I can't deal with this and started to close down. We've lost a very large block of autumn colour because they've had theirs in August. They've already gone bare. My next article is from local historian and guide, Martin Taylor, who I find uh, has usually some extremely good articles. Mm. This one is the Savings Bank House, erroneously called Penny Bank House, for many years is a pseudo-Jacobean edifice built in three stages starting in 1846 on the site of a former post office run by Philip Deck. This date can be verified in the brickwork on the north-facing side opposite the Norman Tower. The restoration of the tower saw its saviour, architect Lewis Knockholes, Cottingham, not only draw up a specification to restore it, but also for plans to build a new bank for the trustees of the Bury Savings Bank. An order was placed for £2,300 with Thomas Farrell, the builder also with the responsibility for the Norman Tower work. This new build was carried out in three phases. However, the last phase, facing Crown Street, was not carried out by Farrell. The iconic diapering which is a crisscross in the brickwork, supposedly caused by burning the header of the brick, is not as pronounced as in the first two phases. The fine oriel window, with intricate carving below the sill, faces into the churchyard, while a lesser quality oriel window is on Crown Street. On opening, the savings bank had 3,000 depositors ranging from the widow's mite of one penny upwards. However, the opening of the new post office in 1896 on Cornhill 
sounded the death knell of the savings bank, better interest rates on offer elsewhere. Interestingly, excavation work in the bank's cellars at the end of the 20th century revealed medieval skeletons proving that the great churchyard extended right up to the abbey precinct wall, the remainder of which sits between the Norman Tower and Savings Bank House. Over the years, something interesting, elements pertaining to the exterior of the property have disappointingly disappeared, and it is now split into two, Norman Tower House in Crown Street and Norman Tower Cottage in the Great Churchyard. A blue plaque put up by the Bury Society in 2012 to Lewis Cottingham, 1787-1847, convey the origins of this very interesting building. We're moving to letters now. And my first letter is from Peter Shorrick and he is writing from Diabetes UK. Diabetes UK is urging everyone with diabetes to book their free flu jab and COVID-19 booster to protect themselves and others this winter. People with diabetes have a higher risk of becoming seriously ill if they develop COVID. In addition, flu can also be very serious. People living with diabetes are particularly vulnerable to serious complications if they get COVID or flu. Getting COVID or flu can make diabetes harder to manage, causing blood sugar levels to rise dangerously high. With COVID cases rising once more, it's crucial that people with diabetes stay well and stay out of hospital. That's why, more than ever, it is important that people with diabetes book and take up the offer of both jabs. People with diabetes are likely to be contacted soon to book their vaccinations or you can visit www.nhs.uk forward slash winter vaccinations. It is safe to have both jabs at the same time if this is offered. If anyone needs advice on how to wear to get a flu jab or questions around the COVID booster, please contact the Diabetes UK helpline on 0345 123 2399 Monday to Friday 9am to 6pm. You can find more information on diabetes, coronavirus and flu at diabetes.org.uk My first letter is from David Phillips in Grundesborough. Curing hospital bed shortage. I have been discussing this idea with friends and have shared it with the chair of the Ipswich Council, the Ipswich Hospital Trust and Dr Daniel Poulter. The NHS and social care need money. The government does not have it and the first big problem for hospitals is bed blocking. The solution is to create convalescent accommodations in currently vacant high street premises. Conversion can be quite nightingale fast to quickly remove pressure on the hospital. Using existing premises will increase high street footfall, use existing transport infrastructure and encourage friends and relatives to spend with small businesses. 
Accommodation will also include small retail units, providing goods and services that visitors can use, plus restaurants, cafes for patients and visitors. These will provide revenues to support running costs. Patients will also be expected to contribute to their care too. Management will be vested in local people and not big conglomerates. A political benefit is that the local government will have cured the shortage of beds. Uh, my second letter is from Bear Grills OBE and he's the Chief Scout. A year ago we opened our very first Squirrels Scout Dray. For the first time four and five year old children were part of the Scouts movement. We prioritised areas hardest hit by the pandemic, offering hope, skills and friendship to so many families. With a mix of outdoor play, storytelling and team games, we knew we could make a massive difference to young lives when it mattered most. Squirrels is now one year old. Here in Suffolk it's going from strength to strength. But it's not just young people we're helping, we're supporting communities too. The positive impact is just amazing to see. Parents and carers who volunteer are also having fun, expanding their local network and gaining leadership skills. Meanwhile, their children are growing in confidence and making new friends. Volunteering, volunteers are realising it's as good for them as it is for others. So why not think about volunteering for squirrels? If you can give a little time, we'll provide the tea and cake. Happy birthday, Squirrels, and thank you to our volunteers too. My letter is from Rosalind and Simon Lavington in Ipswich. Ticket offices are vital for passengers. Central government savings always seem to make life more expensive for citizens. In effect, central government now owns National Rail and it has been reported it is planning to close ticket offices. For many years, in fact since 2012, when a trip to the station ticket office saved us £223 on taking the family to the Paralympics, we have always gone back to the ticket office for hours. On the last occasion, a couple of weeks ago, we saved £17, taking the grandson to Peterborough. Had we purchased from the ticket machine, it would have cost us £19 for his ticket instead of £2. Invariably, the expertise of the counter clerks and the opportunity to discuss options saves us money. And anyone who uses the ticket office will have had the same experience. The ticketing structure is fiendishly complicated now, and the ticket machines simply don't reflect that. Perhaps that's the objective. More money for them, less money for us. We need to object. A handwritten letter to your MP must be answered. Audrey Naylor from Ipswich writes, I for one love the what's on pages. I colour copied the Father Christmas article and placed in carrier bags of random stuff awaiting family exchanges. Likewise, the children's shows page in Woolsey Theatre Spring Programme. Like house sales, 
Christmas can be like a chain of contracts and contacts delicately manoeuvred to exclude no one, God willing. If we can squeeze in a joint visit to Santa with a couple of our geographically scattered children, it will be great. They'll need notice. It's never too early to at least think about Christmas gatherings. On the other hand, Halloween is getting a bit commercial, isn't it? I have two letters here uh, which relate to each other. And the first one is from Ken Levitt at Ipswich. Accept need for Northern Bypass. Regarding Peter Davis' letter, No Need for Northern Bypass, East Anglian Daily Times, October the 17th, with this gentleman living at Maltersham, he doesn't have to put up with the hassle that is caused when the bridge is closed. The problem it causes for people getting to work, the pollution it causes, some of it also caused by one-way systems, traffic lights, etc. With development of this area, ongoing road expansion is going to be needed whether people like it or not. So accept that a bypass will have to be built sooner rather than later. Wake up, sleepy Suffolk. And the next letter is from A.J. Bailey, Ipswich, and he says, ditch this monstrous scheme. I agree with Pete Davis, East Anglian Daily Times letters, October the 17th, that the Northern Bypass is not the answer. However, he doesn't stress the main reason. The, de the despolation of the attractive and precious countryside north of the town can't we put this monstrous scheme to bed for good? I'm going to read you a feature now, and it's the memories of an old Bulmer boy, and his name is Peter Rowe, and he's written a book, and the headline here is My Life in a World Long Gone, a 1940s village childhood. Plaster was falling off the walls, brick floors had been worn by generations of hobnail boots, and doors and windows let in draughts and rain. Water came from a well in Grandad's garden next door. In summer it could run dry, and then the only source was a spring-fed ditch 300 yards away. When retired builder Peter Rowe sat down to write his life story, he realised there was only one place to start the cottage where he was born. He grew up in the heart of the countryside in a world so different from what we know today. Now, aged 82, he has brought those times back to life in a book that begins with a vivid picture of the joys and hardships of a village childhood in the 1940s and 50s. Peter lived with parents Tom and Elsie and older sisters Jean and Esther in the hamlet of Upper Houses on the outskirts of Bulmer near Sudbury. Grandparents, aunts and uncles all had homes close by. The fields, farms and meadows were his playground and where he discovered his lifelong love of wildlife and history. Home now is a bungalow he built for himself and his wife Wendy 50 years ago and where he can still see what he calls the ancestral home of the rose. When Peter was born in 1940, it was, like most country properties, in a sadly run-down state. 
our cottages didn't even have a kitchen sink with a drain, so the washing-up bowl had to be emptied onto the garden, he recalls. The only form of heating, and at first cooking as well, was a huge ingle-look fireplace. An oil lamp lit the living room, but everywhere else a flickering candle was the only illumination. Electricity arrived at upper houses in 1958, but Maine's water was not connected until Peter had married and left home. The bucket lavatory was in a ramshackle weather-boarded closet a few yards from the back door, stifling and smelly in summer and freezing in winter when a trip to the loo could mean braving a snowstorm. With expensive shop-bought playthings out of reach, homemade toys were the order of the day. One toy Dad made me had four little aeroplanes suspended from cross arms. This was driven by the clockwork mechanism of an old roasting spit used to turn meat hanging in front of an open fire. A visit to his grandparents next door would often be rewarded with an apple. Their favourites were called Darcy Spice. He also collected strips of tinfoil dropped from enemy aircraft to mask the planes from radar, some of which found their way onto the Rowe family's Christmas tree. His dad, whose work at Bulmer Brickyard was a reserved occupation, joined the Home Guard with duties including all-night fire-watching. The fire-watcher's hut was an old railway cattle truck which stood in Albert Rowe's threshing contractor's yard, where our bungalow now stands. After the war, when Fruity had only gazed at longingly in picture books, was at last available, he was bitterly disappointed to find bananas were not juicy. <laughs> Wild rabbits were a prime source of meat during rationing. But, he writes, I wonder what today's kids would make of the delicacy that Dad used to prepare for me. The head of a rabbit split in two. I remember I really liked the brain and tongue. Pip, the milkman, delivered to the door in large cans from which he filled pint bottles with a ladle before fishing in the pockets of his grubby overall for a cardboard cap. And I wonder how many of our listeners will think back on their time and remember one or two of those things as well. Right, in keeping with the Halloween theme, that uh, since we've just had Halloween, this article is all about the spooky details of Bury St Edmunds. One of Suffolk's oldest towns, Bury St Edmunds, has a rich history that goes back hundreds of years. And it's this town's fascinating heritage that inspired former police officer John Saunders to become a tour guide in the very place he knows and loves. And every year, John will don his most macabre funeral attire and take groups around the town to show curious visitors some of its scariest, bloodiest and spookiest hotspots. After embarking upon a year-long intensive training course, John became a fully qualified tour guide, and he hasn't looked back. This year, we've seen the re-emergence of people coming to visit from abroad, which is good news for us. We've had people come from across places such as Europe, America, 
Asia and Africa. We even had a group visit us from New Zealand after they'd read about our tours in a magazine. People who come to Bury St Edmunds are always fascinated by its quaintness, history and beauty. Typically running on a Friday night, John and his team have been so overwhelmed with demand that they're extending the tours all the way through to March. So where are some of the hotspots John takes people on his 90-minute tour? We will start off at Moises Hall, before making our way to the Butter Market and Cornhill, where I will discuss some of the various premises that have played host to poltergeist activity. For anyone unaware, Moises Hall was once a workhouse, police station and jail, but today is a popular museum. Known for its collections related to murder, witchcraft and the paranormal. Stories of terror go all the way back to the 14th century, with a woman reported to have seen a most horrible devil in the cellar. Most famously, perhaps, Moises Hall is linked with the infamous Red Barn murder that took place in 1827. Murderer William Corder was hanged in the town a year later for this crime, and parts of his body can be found in the museum. A death mask was created, and his skin was tanned and used to bind a book which documented the grisly tale. In 1828, shrieks and apparitions were reported after Corder was hung, and those only stopped when his skull was finally buried. As the guides and their groups make their way through town, they ensure to stop off at Skinner Street, often dubbed the only real medieval street left in Bury St Edmunds. Its name doesn't leave too much to the imagination, as it is where animals were skinned back in the day. You can just picture the horrible scene, with blood and offal running down the street, combined with the remnants of the fish markets. This would all flow down the gutters of the street, creating an incredibly foul smell in that part of town. As you make your way down the traverse, you will be taken to Capola House, built in 1693, this historic private home was destroyed in a fire before it was rebuilt in 2012. However, it has been plagued by a handful of ghostly apparitions over the years, including a ghostly Victorian woman dressed in all white who was spotted by a member of staff. She reportedly stood there for a few minutes before vanishing and a former landlady once claimed things in the cellar would move on their own. Another spine-chilling place on the tours is the Nutshell Pub, which lays claim to being one of the smallest pubs in the country. However, don't let its pint-sized square footage fool you, as this tiny watering hole is host to some ghostly visitors. Pub has a reputation for being haunted by a little boy in one of the rooms, explains John. The legend has it that the young child passed away under suspicious circumstances, with many speculating he drowned in the bath. And it is reported that if you look hard enough, you'll catch a glimpse of him before he quickly disappears.
Pub patrons have also reported poltergeist activities within, including smashed glasses and drained batteries. Be sure to also catch a glimpse of the mummified cat that hangs within. But beware, don't touch it, as it may bring about bad luck. According to local legend, a landlady who tried to clean the mummified moggy shortly lost her job after touching it. And a group of servicemen from nearby RAF Honington, who stole the cat, fell foul to a series of accidents and fires until they made the wise decision to return it. And John's favourite haunted hotspot is his hometown, without a doubt. That would have been the Great Churchyard. The Great Churchyard is reportedly home to one of the town's most infamous undead residents, the Grey Lady, who is said to appear in the churchyard at 11pm on February the 24th every year. She is believed to have been a nun who is linked to the death of the Duke of Gloucester, who is thought to have been murdered in 1447 at St Saviour's Hospital. Since her demise, locals claim they have spotted her at the Abbey Ruins, the St Saviour's Hospital Ruins, the Priory Hotel, the Theatre Royal, within various shops on Abbeygate Street, in buildings on Angel Hill and in the cellars of Cupola House. So you can only imagine where she may appear and when she may appear. But uh, that's a nice appropriate one for just having finished Halloween. <laughs> and now for something <clears throat> completely different. Markets, festival, fair and lights on. That's the Christmas lineup. With the festive season on the horizon, the full lineup of Christmas events in Bury St Edmunds has been revealed. The festivities kick off on November the 17th when the Our Bury St Edmunds Christmas Lights event will illuminate the town from 3pm to 8pm. Live on-stage entertainment will return for the first time in three years, along with the annual charity market, street entertainment, food stalls and a fun fair. There will be an opportunity to meet Father Christmas on his sleigh while final arrangements are being made for a popular television character to also attend. Then, from November the 17th to the 20th, a spectacular light show for St Edmund's Day weekend will see sound and light projections onto the Norman Tower and St Edmundsbury Cathedral as part of the Abbey Thousand celebrations. Tickets cost £3 and can be booked online at www.whatsonwestsuffolk.co.uk From November the 24th there will be five days of Christmas events organised by the Christmas in Bury St Edmunds Partnership. St Edmundsbury Cathedral will hold its free Christmas market from November the 24th to the 26th. In addition to the shopping experience, there will be entertainment, including a special guest for children and families, Inca the Polar Bear, performing at noon, 2pm and 3pm on November the 26th. 
A Christmas market will also be at the Ark Shopping Centre from November the 24th to December the 22nd, with festive cabins in Charter Square. From November the 25th to the 27th, there will be a gift fair at the Apex, with more than 50 local arts, crafts and gifts stalls, while upstairs there will be Christmas storytelling. This free gift fair will be open from 10am to 6pm on Friday and Saturday and from 10am to 4pm on the Sunday. Berry's Weekly Saturday Market will have a Dickensian feel on November the 26th with street entertainers, music and more. Look out for Scrooge, the Artful Dodger and Victorian gentlemen riding their penny farthings. Meanwhile, a winter beer festival is at Guildhall Street's Constitutional Club from November the 25th to the 27th. Entry is free from 11.00pm to 11pm on November the 25th, noon to 11pm on November the 26th and 3 to 10pm on November the 27th. For more details, go to www.christmasinburystedmonds.co.uk And now I have a feature on the Beatles. What's the connection between the Beatles and a Victorian grave in the old cemetery in Ipswich? It's a little tenuous, but however the story goes, in 1867, circus manager John Henderson, a renowned big-top performer in his day, brought this troupe to Ipswich. Sadly, while he was in Suffolk, Mr Henderson died from pleurisy and was buried in Ipswich Cemetery. Apparently, thousands of people attended the funeral. Such was his fame and popularity. He was, as it said, a fine, tall man with curly hair and a bushy moustache. Some time later, his body was exhumed and reinterred to be next to his daughter's remains at Highgate Cemetery in North London. But the headstone remains. So here comes the Beatles link. A century after John Henderson's death in 1967, John Lennon was browsing in a Sevenoaks antiques shop during a break from filming promotional material for Strawberry Fields Forever. His eye was caught by a Victorian poster advertising an 1843 circus show headlined Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite. Lennon bought the poster and displayed it proudly at his home. Among the acts being promoted was Mr J. Henderson, the celebrated Somerset thrower, wire dancer, vaulter and rider, the very same man whose grave is in Ipswich. Lennon used the poster as inspiration for the song Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite, which appeared on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The lyrics refer several times to the Hendersons. On the gravestone, a riderless horse is depicted. In the song, Lennon refers to Henry the Horse, although the poster named the horse called Xanthus. Could this be the same horse on the gravestone? 
The Beatles played twice at the Ipswich Gaumont during the days of Beatlemania. Later in the 1960s, John and Yoko Ono visited Lavenham to film a balloon ascent. And of course, Suffolk enjoyed a starring role in the Beatles-inspired film Yesterday. But that is about it. So think that in a quiet, lonely corner of a cemetery in Ipswich is a grave of a man who helped to inspire a Beatles song which is rather poignant. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Bring News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and New Market Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Pat, Graham and myself Val, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. people in the, you know, when, when they know that a, a, a neighbour's going.